0: Main remain standing for the reading of the text as we work our way through the book of Matthew. We're now providentially at Matthew 19, after this time of a wonderful wedding weekend. It's very appropriate for us now to come to this particular text that Jesus was tested with regarding questions on marriage, and particularly divorce and remarriage. It is my intention to give some time to this, and so this will not be finished today, but probably in about three or four parts. So now hear the word of God from Matthew 19, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer... 2, but 1 flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him then, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only to those, only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this difficult text that the Pharisees questioned Jesus on and the very high road that he took on this particular issue, restoring to us an understanding of marriage as it was in the beginning, we confess that Our world and our culture around us today is in such need of this reformation. And we confess that it is only your word, empowered by your spirit, to give us that reformation to those to whom can hear it. And so we ask that you would open up all of our ears today and our hearts that we can all hear it and we can receive it and we can hear the words that our Savior gave This is your word, and we will honor it in the way that we respond. And We are thankful that you direct us with this wisdom from heaven according to your truth that you have revealed. We pray that your spirit would open up uh, the understanding of our minds to this and pray that you would be glorified not only in the preaching but in the receiving of this, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. For the next several weeks, I want to speak to you on this subject of this passage the question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus in order to test him. It's a question over divorce and marriage. I've entitled this this message this morning, Reforming Divorce, perhaps maybe in parallel to Doug Wilson's book, Reforming Marriage because it is in great need today that we reform them both. This is a very difficult topic to speak on this morning, and for some reasons that I confess that I'm not even able to articulate. Some I think I am. But it's not a pleasant topic. It's not one that I even relish speaking on, and one that I probably will raise more questions than give answers. It is, however, important to God. It's important to God that we cover this topic and cover it faithfully according to how He has revealed it here. So it's my intention to be faithful with the Scriptures as much as possible, and I confess that I really don't have all the answers here. But we do need to take this to heart. We are, in this particular passage, at the most extensive treatment of all of the passages in all of the Scriptures here in Matthew 19. And yet I confess this is a very sensitive subject in the life of the church for a number of reasons. Divorce amounts to the loss of one's spouse. It is a death of sorts, but it is a more painful kind of death with greater implications because when we, we bury a dead spouse, there's a cleanness and a simplicity to it. But when one loses his spouse to divorce, there's something reproachful about it. The pain is complicated and it it feels wrong. There's something about divorce that is unclean. There's a soul-wrenching chemistry involving a flood of emotions as well as a host of people. There's anger and loneliness, regret and outrage, oftentimes a sense of personal betrayal, and there's thousands of implications and complications with ongoing awkward relationships as a result. According to the census, the U.S. ranked third in the world for the divorce rate, with, over a, with a divorce rate of over 20%. And that's coming from a country that has been so illuminated with the gospel and the church statistics are not much different if at all from the, stat- the from the statistics that are in the world of the culture of America today even the most liberal minded people do not think that this is a good thing at the turn of the century of 1900 the divorce rate was less than 1% so you can see the trajectory and the direction that this has gone over the last Hundred years or so. So there's a couple of things that we want to consider when couples are living together out of wedlock or when couples divorce in our nation at such a rapid rate as they do, because the implications of these things for the generations to come are incalculable. What's in addition to this is the surprising number of evangelical books and evangelical counselors and even evangelical pastors that are taking the opposite position from what you would expect in people presenting God's viewpoint on this matter. Rather than holding to a position of permanence, there are greater and greater allowances being given for divorce and remarriage that are not found in the Scriptures. In addition to adultery or abandonment for divorce, evangelicals are allowing for physical and emotional abuse. Emotional neglect, the withholding of intimacy by one's spouse, failure to honor one's spouse, a host of other allowances of which the Bible does not give. And these reasons stem from genuine concern for people, many of whom are pastors with a compassion for the ones whose lives are being shattered. But this subject, like all subjects, needs to be examined first of all, not in light of anyone's individual pain. As real and harmful as they may be to that person's well-being. But this subject must first of all be examined Foremost, in the light of God's holy and unchangeable word. And we've got to trust Him. The first question does not have to do with people's happiness as important and significant as that is for every one of us. The first thing has to do with the scriptural position on this. And God's glory. We know that it is possible even for the sake of compassion to unwittingly contribute to the havoc on a broad national civilization scale. And we don't want to do that. We need to reform marriage and reform what is going on in trajectory of divorce rates in our country and in the church. So I want to take a few weeks to consider this very delicate and complex subject. Now I know that we have some folks in our congregation who've been divorced, and we have a good number of people in this congregation that come from broken homes. And it is not my desire to make this time dealing with this subject difficult for you. I understand that this may be emotionally challenging for you to to sit through for the next couple of weeks, but I do want to be fair with the Scriptures and also as tender with your emotions as I can possibly be. But it's important to be scriptural, biblical, in order to honor God's Word to see the needed reform in this area. So let me encourage you, if you fall into a category that this may be difficult, hang in there with us through this. And if God reveals to you in the process that perhaps you've been wrong in the past, in any area that you've made sinful mistakes on this particular topic, you've got a promise from God that you can go to Him and confess your sin, and He will grant you forgiveness. And there is a blessed promise of grace and love that covers a multitude of transgressions, even when we seek Him repentantly. So I'd encourage you, if you come to some new understanding of this from what you have previously known, and that pricks your heart, you have an advocate with the Father the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ready to forgive you of those sins that you so confess to Him. But it is important to deal carefully with the subject while we are here. On Friday, we gave a message regarding the beauty of marriage. And marriage is a reflection of, a metaphor of the relationship that the church has with Christ and Christ has with the church. And the core unit of society that God has created is the family. And this area must be reformed in the church today for Christ's sake, and for the church's sake, and for our society's sake. So as we begin into the first one of these messages, let me give you a, a brief structure of this particular passage in verses 6 through 3 through 6 the pharisees come to jesus with a question and they ask him about the lawfulness of divorce and they do this in order to test him this was not in some sense a, a fair question it was a question to put him on the spot But it was a genuine question in the sense that we should all know what the answer is. And he gives us the answer very clearly. Not being satisfied with that answer, they followed up with another question in verse 7. And I think the the follow-up question reveals the nature of and clarifies what his answer was that did not satisfy them in verses 3 through 6. Such a high view of marriage did Jesus reveal from the Scriptures that even the disciples were not comfortable with his answer, and so then further questions him or implies a question in the way that they responded to him in verses 10 through 12. So we have three sections here, verses 3 through 6, verses 7 through 9, and verses 10 through 12, hoping that I can cover each one of those in three subsequent weeks, beginning with the first one today as I cover just verses 3 through 6. You're going to be leaving here today saying, well, what about, what about, what about? And I'm not there yet. I want today for the Scriptures to soak in with how Jesus answered the question, allow His answer to penetrate into our hearts without telling Jesus, oh, but or yes, but, or what if, the Lord. And let's get out of that mode of being like a Pharisee, and let's just allow God to speak with His Spirit to open hearts to those who can hear it. So let's handle that question, that first question that comes from the Pharisees, is divorce lawful, is really the root of the question, and I think it's important to give some background to that particular question and the starting point of that question because I think it's helpful for us to understand his answer. In verse or in in chapter 24 Deuteronomy which we read shortly ago, this was the context of what the Pharisees were coming to ask of Jesus. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and it goes on. The starting, this was the starting point for the question that the Pharisees were coming and asking of Jesus about the lawfulness of divorce. Divorce. You're going to see that next week as they follow it up with the question that actually refers to this very passage that Moses is referring to. And the phrase of concern of which the Pharisees are bringing to Jesus on that day is translated here, this phrase, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness with her. And the point of question is, what is this uncleanness? This phrase is embedded in a passage whose context included men giving a certificate of divorce because they found some uncleanness in their wives. But they were divided over what the uncleanness was that caused his disfavor toward her. In the day in which Jesus was being questioned by these Pharisees, there were two very strong but opposing schools of thought in the Jewish mind. One was represented by the school of Shammai, and the other was represented by the school of Hillel. These are two schools of Jewish thought that were following two rabbis, each which was named after these two schools. The school of Shammai believed that this uncleanness of which Deuteronomy 24.1 refers to was the unchastity of the wife. Whereas the school of Hillel suggested that a man may divorce his wife even if she ruined a dish for him. If she does not find favor in his eyes. And they're going to focus more on that particular phrase. Later on in the Mishnah, that has to do with prenuptial agreements, that is, agreement that a man and woman has before they get married. It lists grounds for divorce, for giving the husband untithed food or uttering a vow and not fulfilling it, or going out in public with her hair unbound, or even speaking publicly to another man who's not her husband. These would be grounds for divorce. And while both of the schools are quite different in how they interpret the matter, they both assume a lawfulness of divorce, neither took the position that divorce was unlawful. So it's against this background that the Pharisees, with their two schools of thought, come to Jesus with the question to test him, which side then would Jesus take? See, they're setting him up. And Jesus is going to answer their question now in two parts. The first part we're going to see in verses 4 and 5, where he quotes from two passages of the Old Testament. The second part in verse 6 is where he gives a fresh application to those Old Testament principles. So when the Lord begins to answer their question, he begins in verse 4 with, have you not read now there's a there's a rhetorical perspective in which Jesus is throwing that out to the Pharisees. Have you not read? Do you not understand the scriptures? He did this a number of times like with Nicodemus who comes to him and he's explaining to him about the new birth and are you not a ruler of the Jews and you do not understand the Scriptures? He did this to the Sadducees when they're questioning him about the resurrection. Have you, you do not understand the Scriptures. And so this is in a rhetorical kind of, of comment that Jesus is giving them because the answer is that they should know from the Scriptures what the answer is, but they don't. But the Lord with that questioning assumes that the Scriptures, and in fact the Old Testament Scriptures alone, is sufficient to answer their question and to answer it clearly. So he quotes from two passages. And the two passages that he quotes from was much further back than where the Pharisees were starting from. The Pharisees were starting from Deuteronomy 24, which we'll cover in greater detail next Lord's Day, the context of what is going on in Deuteronomy 24. That's not where Jesus starts. And because he starts at a different place, he's really going to be addressing the underlying presupposition that the Pharisees were bringing to the table. And what we have to do when we consider reforming something with such narrowness of Scripture, we have to examine the presuppositions that we all bring to the table. And that's what Jesus was doing to such a high degree that even the disciples were thinking the position that Jesus is taking is such an idealistic and an impossible position that they even questioned him. But let's consider those two passages because we have these should be familiar to us by now, especially in light of where we've been over the past six months with our midweek Bible study, and we've covered these passages, so let me touch back on them briefly because he quotes from each of these. The first Old Testament passage he quotes from in verse 4, have you not read, he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting directly here from Genesis 1.27, which says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And there are three truths that I would like to draw out this morning from that particular passage. And the first one is this. The verse is crediting God with the creation of the human race. God is the creator of humans. And the implication of that very fact runs right through the rest of Scripture and really right through the rest of history, brings us right up to where we are today. God is our creator. We are God's possession He provides for what he owns. And the moment he ceases to do that, we die. Our lives are over. God has all of the rights over us. It is his right to prescribe our behavior. What is right and what is wrong. And what he prescribes for us is primarily for his pleasure and his happiness, not ours, primarily. But what he prescribes for us in the end is to our greatest happiness. He who has ears, let him hear. Now that's the first truth, and we have to trust him on that score. The second truth is this, when he did make us, he made us in the likeness of his own image. He made us in his image. And in that image in which we were created, unlike all of the other animal life, unlike anything else, he made deep possible potential for our relationship with him. And apart from that fact, these potentials would not exist. But because we have been made in God's image, the possibilities of that relationship and all of the relationships are enormous. The image of God in man creates the greatest possibilities in us. And the third thing I'd like to draw on from that Genesis 1.27 passage that Jesus quotes when he says, that he made them male and female, is this. He, when he created the human race, he did so with two individuals. Two individuals that had fundamental differences between themselves. Male and female have constitutional differences from one another. And those differences are enormous, and they, trans, they transcend even their physical differences. That's why you simply cannot go, and I think this is relevant for our day, as unpleasant as it sounds, but that's why you can't simply go through some sex change operation and become the person of the opposite sex. It's it's more transcendent than that. It's not merely just physical. The differences between male and female go beyond just that physical aspect. And these other differences are what young couples come to understand about each other when they thought they were so much alike. But they very quickly come to discover that in disposition and in mind... And in constitution and in spirit, there is embedded in them tremendous differences with one another. Now marriage brings people together who are alike in species. Can I use that term in this particular context? But who are profoundly different in their being. But it is that difference that creates the possibility of the relationship. And that's a remarkable and a wonderful thing to embrace, those differences. But now in this fallen world with sin in our nature, it is those differences that contribute immeasurably toward the discord in that relationship, that erupts in divorce. Divorce springs from those differences. See, in a perfect world before the fall, those differences are wonderful. They're deep. They're profound. That's what establishes the very relationship in the complementary roles of male and female. But now in the fallen world, it's those differences that we then add to the problems that spring great discord. Ladies, let me encourage you with an application here, and then men as well. Ladies, never assume that you understand your husband or what he endures or goes through as a man. You will never understand that. Men, by the same token, let me encourage you. While the Scripture exhorts us to dwell with our wives in understanding, that does not mean you will ever understand what it means to be a woman experientially. You will never understand her in the way that even another woman understands her. So don't try to lead her according to way you would lead another man. And ladies, don't think that your respect for your husband is in the way that you might give another woman. We're going to have to learn and embrace the differences so that relationship can be good and pure and strong. It's those differences that make the profound relationship with great possibility. But it can also create tremendous problems. Now that's the first passage that Jesus quotes from. And he's going to use that Genesis 1, 27 passage as he then goes to the next particular passage and segues, and that he's going to bring from the creation account again, but before the fall when he quotes us and takes us back to Genesis 2, verse 24. And I'm going to read that in its context in Genesis 2. Getting at verse 22, it says, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam, and now I'm going off script here, looks at the woman that God had brought him that he made from the rib and quickened with the spirit and brings her to the man. And Adam looks and says, Eureka! A wife! Perfect suitable companion that I did not find among all of the animals that I was named. But now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is wonderful. This is great. And he says, she is called woman because she's taken out of man. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then the concluding, therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What, what Adam just exclaimed, God said, I'm going to now make permanent in marriage institution that will carry on even beyond Adam and Eve. So husbands, when you go home this afternoon, you go to your wife, and you look at her, and you say, Eureka, praise God, my perfect compliment. Give her a big kiss and give her your love. Because that's the way it was in the beginning. Now, Genesis 127 speaks about the differences between the male and the female, whereas Genesis 2224 communicates about the sameness of male and female, the complementary and the sameness. The woman was taken right out of man and created to be perfectly suited to him, and him perfectly suited to her, a perfect companion for them both. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and this sameness follows marriage now through the ages. Now, my wife did not come from my side like Eve came from Adam, but this sameness, this oneness, still nevertheless continues on because it is the way God has established marriage to be that carries that principle forward. And the sameness that we're talking about is also mentioned in close blood-kin relationships. Let me give you a few examples. Laban says to Jacob, Ah, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Abimelech says to his mother's relatives, I am of your bone and flesh. The tribes come to David at Hebron and they says, we are your bone and your flesh. And that's hearkening all the way back to Jacob and the 12 patriarchs identifying their relationship this blood-kindred relationship to David to give his loyalty there. And the point that the Scripture is use, or makes here is using that term, bone and flesh, is with these blood relationships. And it's used of marriage so that the husband and wife become blood relative even though that's not true in actuality. It is of the first marriage, however, that started this whole deep-blood, kinship relationship. Now, there's a point that Jesus is making here, and that's why we're we're slowing down and really thinking about this from the way that the Scripture is revealing it. It will come together, hopefully, in just a moment. Verse 24 of Genesis 2 then says, Now... Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is what Adam says. Now God then says, therefore, what God has joined together, the two will become one flesh. Now here's a union that God has established that goes beyond blood-kin relationships. They leave blood-kin relationship. A, f- a man shall leave that father-mother and cling to his wife. The same is true for the woman, albeit it's not related relate, relate in Genesis 2, albeit it's given in Psalm 45, that a woman leaves her mother and father and comes into this close relationship, leaving blood-kinship, and now being united in a relationship is, which is as close to blood Relationship, and yea, it even transcends it and is closer. And that's the uniqueness of marriage. It surpasses even the blood kinship. It's a oneness that is exclusive to those people. And that is communicated when the scripture says that a man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife. So that even when a man leaves his flesh and blood in that unique relationship for the uniqueness of marriage, that marriage transcends even those blood kinships. That's how close marriage is. And this bond between a husband and a wife is a permanent bond. It says what God joins together. Now in Genesis 2.24 the term that is used that God joins together, where the two become one flesh, that word joined is a word that means glued together or welded together. In fact, Isaiah uses the terms for two metals being welded together. Job uses the term to describe skin being welded to our bones. Leviathan scales are said to be so closely joined or glued together that they cannot be separated. So the way that the word is used in Scripture helps us to understand what is being communicated to us between a man and a wife. So marriage is a new relationship that exceeds even that of blood relationship and kinship. Here are two people not related by blood, and yet once joined together in marriage, it is closer than if they were related by blood. They are welded together. This is exclusive to the two of them. This is permanent to the two of them. And this is remarkably to becoming what we think of when we talk about organically being made one the two flesh living flesh coming together organically made one now this physical union in itself does not constitute marriage. We know that when Jesus said to the woman on the well at the well, yes, you are right. You have had five husbands and the man that you're now with physically is not your husband. So we know just physically coming together this way is not in of itself marriage. But marriage is a unique special covenant relationship that includes this physical oneness but is also more than just the physical oneness. And that is why there's something more dimensional and transcendent than just the physical aspects of this relationship. The two become closer than blood relatives. Now this is what the Lord is answering. Is it lawful to divorce? And quotes from Genesis 1.27, quotes from Genesis 2.24... He's quoting from the creation account with the idea that even before the fall that God is established continues on even in the present day, and those principles are still true in this fallen world from the very beginning, and he suggests that this settles the issue and it answers their question about the lawfulness of divorce. But unless there was some misunderstanding at this point, he's going to continue in verse 6, he's now going to give a fresh application to those old principal truths that he just drew from. So he says in verse 6 of Matthew 19, So then, now concluding and applying what I just said, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, two truths we need to consider from that response. Number one is this. Lost people can be married to one another in the sight of God, and that marriage is inseparable in life. I know some people believe that only Christian marriages are biblical marriages and only valid marriages, and that's simply not the way Scripture reveals it. In other words, marriage is not limited to Christians. It's a creational principle that applies to human beings. And the Genesis is true for, for all humans. What God has welded together, let no man try to separate. And that is not to say that every union that is called a marriage is a true biblical marriage that God has welded together. Homosexual marriage is not marriage. I don't care what you call it, and I don't care what the civil magistrate says about it. it, Homosexuals getting married is not marriage. They're not married. There's lots of other kinds of things like that that people call marriages that are not valid marriages. But this and those other things like it are really outside the scope of what the Pharisees are asking as they come to testing. Lawful marriage is one that is welded together by God, and that's what they were referring to in terms of the lawfulness of a divorce. God is the principal party at every marriage, whether Christian or not. We cannot take the position that unbelieving married people are not married in God's sight. That's simply something the Scripture will not give us. A second truth that I'd like to mention from verse 6 however is that God forbids human beings to separate what he has welded together. What God has done let no man try to undo. So the question is did Jesus side with Shammai school or did he side with the Hillel school? Did he side with Shammai who says that there's no lawfulness in divorce except for no divorce apart from sexual unfaithfulness? Or did he side with Hillel who believes that grounds for divorce are much broader than that, even if a husband is displeased with her for pretty much any reason, then he can divorce her. Which side did Jesus take? That's the question. And the the answer is he took neither side. Their starting point to the question began with Moses' instructions of Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus says, you don't understand the Scriptures and what God meant from the beginning. And that's where he took the entire answer to their question is all the way back to Genesis. That's why those Genesis 1-2 principles are so quintessential for us to understand life and how it works and what God's intentions are for us in our relationships. Simply put, Jesus was saying it's not lawful for a man to divorce his wife. That was his answer. They weren't expecting that. They both were assuming that there was some lawfulness, and that's why they prefaced the question based upon that presupposition. But Jesus removed that presupposition by taking them back to Genesis, and he didn't side with either one. They were asking on what conditions is it lawful. Jesus was backing him as argument, saying it's not lawful. It's such a high position that he took that they had to follow it up with another question. Well, then why did Moses command Deuteronomy 24? And the disciple says, then who should be married? No one should get married if that's your position, Jesus. I mean, that's how narrow and how high of a view that he was positioning, but that was his answer. such a restrictive sense that Jesus was teaching about marriage that even his own disciples were questioning him privately about it. Now, what Jesus is answering, he says, this was true in Adam and Eve's case. And it's been true for every case since that time. And it's true right up to this day as he's answering the Pharisees, and it's true right up to this day as he's answering us. What God has welded together, let no man try to unweld. When you begin severing a marriage, it's like tearing a human body apart, it's like dissecting the human anatomy and doing a surgical kind of procedure that then goes beyond merely the physical separation, but goes down into the spiritual and psychological aspects of this union as well. It contravenes God's actions of what He did when He's welding them together, and you'll never escape the complications of that attempt to separate In this life, you'll never escape those complications. Even if you enter into marriage with an unbeliever who is as lost as a demon, it is a marriage until death do you part. Regardless of the spiritual nature of your spouse, it is God's will that you never divorce your spouse. I told you this was a difficult message to preach. It's probably a difficult message to hear. But it's God's message that He wants us to embrace. Young people, hear me. Do not enter casually into relationships that begin to develop your hearts and feelings and commitments that inevitably lead to marriage. Do not do that casually. So much of the casual attitude towards marriage and the tragic consequences of divorce comes from the casual spirit of our culture where men and women are in and out of relationships. Entering into a relationship, breaking up, entering into another relationship. And this is not preparation for marriage, this is preparation for divorce and remarriage. That's why we don't encourage a dating culture here. Where we go try out this person and then we're they, they displease us for some Hillel reason, and then we go and we try out that person, and then we go try this person, and, and we kind of play the field, play the game. We discourage that here. Because that is a formative practice of a liturgy that is enforcing a mindset of a casual relationship of marriage and Divorce. To reform the di- divorce, we need to carefully consider all the attendant relationships and the cultural catechisms and the liturgies that are formative, that that discipline and train us by habit of what we are to live our lives like. And casual emotional relationships between men and women with no view of marriage in sight is playing and toying with the wrong perspective, and I would highly encourage you to consider the broader implications for that kind of thing. Young people, be careful and cautious about this. Be careful about casual relationships that evoke your emotions in your heart, but do not have marriage clearly in view. Allow your parents to lead you and guide you and Make good use of the church's officers and elders that he's given you as a grace to your life. Be careful about going out for advice to your peers or even to to those outside the church who may be in the church, maybe counselors or pastors or authors who've written books but they're not drawing their answers from the scriptures. Be careful about that because there's a a ton of things out there today. And I would say this, when your heart becomes entangled with another person in a relationship, don't trust yourself. You can't think straight. You better be relying on those counselors, elders, pastors, parents to help you get your heart back in line with your mind. Because it's better never to marry than to be married to the wrong person that you're stuck with for the rest of your life. I want to caution you about a lot of that literature out there today, because be sure that you're getting God's counsel from the Scriptures. It takes a lot of grace to remain in an unhappy marriage, but it is the right thing To do. There have been some marriages that God has foreordained that a person enters into that will be an unhappy marriage that they remain committed and faithful to, and in the end, He will reward them with great happiness if they're faithful. Hosea is a perfect illustration of that intention and design. See, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, and it's an inseparable bond between the two. And the gravity of this topic is so great that it directly reflects upon the union identified with us and our Lord in the table that is set before us today. This is a profound and deep truth, and I've addressed only the first part of this extensive passage this morning, addressing Jesus' response to the lawfulness of divorce as He was tested by the Pharisees. It's important that we start here with a firm understanding and be clear what Jesus was saying to them as His answer before we move on to those other portions of Scripture. We have to let this part sink in first before we jump so quickly with all the yes but and the exceptions and all of this. This is how Jesus answered the Pharisees. This is how Jesus answered the school of Shammai. So as we work toward the needed reformation in society regarding marriage and even divorce to the glory of God, we need to hear the Scriptures and what God has to say in His Word. And when we do, we will appreciate with all the, the more thankfulness, the inseparable bond with which God has welded us to His Son, which is illustrated in our marriages. May God give us the grace to endure with much perseverance, And may he lead us in the future days to see a great reformation of of that divorce rate and the marriage rate. The marriage rate ought to be going up, the divorce rate going down. Right now we're seeing the divorce rate going up while the marriage rate is going down. Because a lot of people are just simply living with each other out of wedlock. Let's pray. A gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the blessed marriage that we experience with our Lord Jesus Christ in union with Him, where the two are made one flesh. And how thankful we are that He has become incarnate, He has become flesh, and we in Him have the surety and the certainty of our future resurrection because He is the first fruits, and we already taste of it in Him. As we come to this table this afternoon, we taste of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who is giving us the spiritual sustenance from His resurrected and living body and blood. We are thankful that He loves us and He died for us, He cleanses us, and Lord, we cherish You. And we love you and are thankful that you have invited us into this communion of fellowship with yourself in such an intimate way that it is quite mystical for us and beyond our understanding. But Thank you for the grace and the love and the mercy that you've given to us. And we pray that you would make all of these truths abound so that we would draw closer to our spouses, We would help our children through those most significant decisions and that we would cultivate here among us the biblical culture that embraces this biblical marriage that we have so enjoyed this weekend and that we would disdain the unbiblical divorce that is so prominent in our our culture. So we pray for your blessings upon this for the generations to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.